Well, if um, you were with us a couple of weeks ago when um, some of us saw the old city walls, um, there we saw some interesting things, and some of which I never knew were there, and some were the old churches and a couple of monasteries. And if we do know the, the history of monasteries, we know that some people um, who we might know as monks um, chose the monastic lifestyle because they saw that it was a way to somehow flee from the desires of the world. You know, they, they felt like the world was pressing on them. And so they chose that kind of life as a way of solitude in order to achieve personal holiness, to stay away from society, which they believed was sort of immoral and doomed. And so for them, retirement from the world was a way to help them to crucify their passions and their desires and to develop a spiritual life of meditation, one that was characterized, according to them, by good works. But we know when we turn to our Bibles that that's not the kind of life that God has called us onto. For those of us who are saved and we are trusting in Christ, we do know that the lifestyle that he has called us to is not one to flee away from the world. But yet, I want us to consider, on the other hand, the fact that at times, the line that should divide the church and the Christians from the world is so blurry that there is no difference between the two. And we might call that worldliness. And so one of the parts of the monks, the lifestyle that they chose was one of escapism, if we might call it that, one to sort of flee away from the world. But on the other hand, there is also a danger that there is no difference between the Christian and the world. And both dangers, the scripture warns us against. And when we turn to our passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the command there is clear. John writes to believers. This letter wasn't sent to unbelievers. It was sent to people who were trusting in Christ, people who he describes as knowing God. Although there are people who are at various stages of their spiritual journey. And earlier in verse 12, he calls some of them little children, some fathers, some young men. And this does not mean that they were quite young in age or elderly in age, but rather that there were some who were fathers in the faith, some who were young men. But each and every one of them were believers. Yet, they all face that danger of loving the world. And the command that he calls them up to here in verse 15 is do not love the world. I don't know if when you think about that, if for you um, the temptation is to flee from the world, or rather if it is to be worldly. And so from this our passage this morning, I just want us to Consider three reasons why the Christian is not to love the world. Because to love the world is to give you affections, to let the world govern your life, to let it possess your soul, to let the world dictate your goals and your expectations. As I said earlier, John gives his readers the three reasons from this passage 
why they must not love the world. It is not an advice, rather it is a command. Do not. And so first, I want us to consider what the world is. And second, what actually is in the world. And thirdly, where the world is going. I believe the the second and the third are quite apparent from the passage. But for the first one, we might have to look closely um, at the New Testament and also the context of this letter. So first, what is the word? And the term word there um, from the Greek is cosmos. And what it represents is a system, you know, a system, an organized system as opposed to chaos. With some of us who are um, in the sciences of physics and all that, we understand what chaos and disorder is. But on the opposite, cosmos means an order, some kind of ordered system. But yet in the Bible, when we come to this word, world, it's often used three different times. But it's one that is represented here. But first, the word world could mean the physical habitat, the earth, the created order. We all know that God made the world and everything in it. As Acts 17 verse 24 reminds us. Secondly, we know that the nations and the human community oftentimes are, are, are represented as the world. You know, from Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And so in that sense, he was saying and telling his disciples and his followers to go and present the gospel to the peoples of the earth. And third, which is what actually is represented by the same word here, is the ways of fallen humanity. The ways of man that is alienated from God and his truth. The ways of man that has sort of rejected God and his ways and his truth and his word. That I say to God, we do not want you. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And the past few weeks we have been studying the Gospel of John. And from the beginning of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 10, John actually uses word, this term cosmos, three times in a single verse and it represents these three different meanings of the term where he says about Jesus, he was in the world, that is, among the people, and the world, that is, the earth and the creation was made through him. Yet, the world, the sinful realm, did not know him. And so we have that that physical system, we have the, the human system, and we have the sinful, evil system. But as Christians, we know that we are to love the earth, Because as I said, God made it. We know that we are to love the people around us. We are to love our neighbors. Because they are the ones that we are also to take the gospel to. But yet, it is entirely inappropriate for Christians to become worldly in respect to the taught sense. And so the word then, as John uses it here, is the way in which our collective life in society is organized around the self 
in substitution to God. And we can see this in, in, in three different ways. We can see that one, the world, the system, the sinful man is opposed to God. And we know that the world is neither neutral nor harmless. The world is laden with values that are against God. I don't know if that is coming to you as a shock, but when you turn on your news, when you look at the media, you know that all man perpetuates there is all anti-God. It's a system that doesn't want him. And that's one of the reasons why we, we read from Daniel chapter 1. For those of us who are quite familiar with um, the story of Daniel, we know that Daniel and his friends and the young youths, they were taken from sort of the, 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 the community of God in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, and they were taken to Babylon, which in the Bible represents the world in that sense. And there we know that they were not just kept there and said, oh, you can continue to live your life. No. Their goal there, we are told, in Daniel chapter 1, was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They had a goal to, to change their way of thinking, to re-educate them. And also, they gave them new names. Their names, Daniel, um, Hananiah, and Mishael were all names that were dedicated to the God of Israel, Yahweh. But the name Belshazzar, Meshach, and Abednego were all names that were dedicated to the Babylonian gods. And in that sense, the goal was to change their identity. And that is the goal of the world. The goal of the world in this sense, as John uses it here, in which we are called not to, walk, to love, is one that desires to change our identity. One that desires to, to give us its values. But yeah, we know that the opposition that the world presents is not simply one that is at a political level. It's not simply one that, you know, when we talk about the, the, the Nebuchadnezzars, the, the, kings of, the king of, Cyrus, of Babylon, Cyrus, then. It's not just at a political level. It is also intellectual because it cuts across every facet of life. It is commercial. It is cultural. It is social. And we definitely know that it is sexual. And the resistance to God does not happen, first of all, on a global level. It begins at the personal level. Where every single person that lives in the world says, I have the right to define myself. I do not want God's definition of who I am and who he has made me. And so the world is not only opposed to God. As I said, there are, there are three ways we can use this word. One, that it is opposed to God. And second, the world does not know him. Oh, the world might know that you know, there is a God in as much as they do reject him, but they certainly do not know him. And they do not know him because the world denies the Son. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world does not know God because the world does not know Christ. And thirdly, the world is under the rule of the devil. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 also, he says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus calls the, the devil the prince of this world in John 12, 31. And Paul refers to him in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, as the prince of the air. We know that the world is under the authority of the devil. And for us, we know certainly that we live in the same world just as Daniel and his friends. We live in the same world just as the recipients of John's letter. And so if we are believers, if we receive this command not to love the world in this sense, then should it be that the world shouldn't define us? That we shouldn't, in a sense, fight for acceptance in the, law, in the world? Because if we are fighting for acceptance in it, as, as John says, it means that the love of the Father is not in us. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And a love for the world is totally incompatible with a love for the Father. I'm, I'm a Barcelona fan, and I wonder if it's possible to support both Barcelona and Real Madrid. We know that they are fierce rivals. They are enemies in that sense. I can't imagine you know, celebrating when Barcelona scores and also celebrating when Real Madrid scores. One has to give way. In the same sense, you can be cheering for God and also be cheering for the world. You can't let the world govern you and at the same time claim that you are living for God. And also when we, when, when we look at the, the fact that the world is under the authority of the devil, I know some of us come from a context where devils and demons are a big thing. But there are some who, who will deny the fact that reality of, of the devil. But as one of my favorite writers said, see, there are, there are two equal and opposite errors in which we can fall. One is to disbelieve in the existence of the devils. And the other is to b- believe in it, but yet to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So that in everything we see that the devil is at work. But if we are truly trusting in Christ, then we know that he has overcome the world. We know that he has overcome the devil. And we know that as children of God, we are from God and we have overcome. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so you don't live your life believing that the devil has ultimate authority or power over you. You live your life knowing that Jesus has conquered. And he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, 
our faith. So for those who are in Christ, we know that we are victorious over the world. And so we do not live for the world. We do not love the world. So we have seen what the world is. It is a system that is opposed to God. One that doesn't know him. And one that is under the authority and power of the devil. But yet, one that God in Christ has overcome. So secondly, what is in the world? As, as John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And he goes on to list the three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, these are things that, that, that we are quite familiar with. What are the desires of the flesh? It's not just about the body. Rather, it is that which feeds the sinful, fallen nature. The basic remnants of your sinful nature. It is that which feeds that, that part of you that is yet to be transformed. No, we, we all have our desires. We, we all hunger. We all test. We all go, grow tired and want to rest. But yet, how often can the desire for food and, and the desire to, to satisfy our hunger in that sense be perverted and, and give way to, to gluttony? How often can test be perverted and become drunkenness? How easy can weariness be perverted and become laziness? How easy can sex, when perverted, become immorality? In Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21, Paul makes a list of the works of the flesh. Where he says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And all this and all this, and he goes on to say, I warn you as I warned you before. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The desires of the flesh and also the desires of the eyes. Without the eyes, we can't see. You need your eyes to, to make your way down to church. You need your eyes to even behold the, the beauty of God's creation. The eyes is very important. Yet, the eye is a gate that, that brings with itself temptations. We, we can think of, of even the first instance and illustration from Genesis chapter 3, where um, the devil tempted Eve. And what did, what did Eve see? She saw that a tree was desired to make one wise. And when her eyes saw it, she, behold, she beheld that it was quite beautiful. And I believe at, at, at this level, and some of us men can relate, the fact that the things that we see can be quite tempting. Not just for the men, but I believe also for the ladies. The things that the world gives to us to 
advertisement is because you understand how the eyes work. How the, the whole billions of dollars that are pumped into the pornographic industries because the world understands that if they get some of us by our eyes, they can hook us. And so the desires for the flesh can be those that come from within, from our sinful nature. The desires of the eyes are those that come from outside. And, and the admonition for us is to make sure that we do not feed those things. Because when we do, we're clearly saying that we love the world and we love its systems, we love its values. And we are ready to go along with it. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and thirdly, he says, the pride of life. And each and every one of these do not come from the Father, but from the world. They do not have their source in God, but from the world. What is the pride of life? See, a lot of us here are dedicated people. We, we work, be it as students. We work, be it in a secular job to make ends meet. And as Jesus told, before, told um, the crowd in, in Luke chapter 12, when a man asked, that Jesus might be the one that mediates between him and his brother. He reminded them that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. How easy it is for us to boast in our intellect, to boast in our strength, to boast in our beauty, in our wisdom, in our talents, in our achievements. And that is exactly what the rich fool did in that parable that Jesus told. We had the man, after he was successful, he was quite hardworking. He made his wealth the right way. He was dedicated to what he did. But at the end, he, he thought to himself, you know, I have accomplished all this. Now it's time for me to feast on them. He completely disregarded God. He felt he could do without him. And that is exactly what the world does today. That is exactly the pride that governs people. That is exactly where we see in a world that things that you know we have progressed and we are developing and we have you know medicine and science, we have technology, we have Beautiful houses to live in. They will sit back and say, yeah, we have achieved this of ourselves. And that is the pride that, as I said, doesn't just begin at the top. It begins at a personal level. But yet, these desires are not some that we should deny. Each and every one of us here, if we are honest with ourselves, we acknowledge that yes, we have our desires. We have the things that we long for. 
But the first question we should ask ourselves is, where do we get our ultimate satisfaction from? A large amount of us here, maybe 90, 95% roughly, are all students. And we are used to exam questions. So if I may just ask, you ask yourself personally, if I only had dash, I would be happy. If I only had dash, I would be ultimately fulfilled. If I only had dash, all my desires in life would be met. The answer that you give to that will tell you if you're living for the world, if you love the world, or if you love God. And so we've seen what the world is and why we shouldn't love it because of what it is. We've seen the desires in it. And as I said, we, we are not to, to live like the monks and you know, deny the reality of this and feel that we can escape from them. But yet, it is that we find our ultimate satisfaction and the only one who can ultimately satisfy us, Jesus. Because as, as John goes on to say, which is our third point, where the world is going, the world and its desires are passing away. They are fleeting, which is why they can't satisfy you. The world is ever-changing. Last, last Thursday, I was quite scared when I saw the, um, the guide for our study during the growth group. By then, I had, I had already um, decided what I was going to uh, preach on today, and it was quite similar to today's sermon, and I felt, well, if everyone comes Thursday, you probably don't need to come here. And if I contradict what you heard on Thursday, I'm sorry. But during, during our meeting here in church, we, we reminded ourselves, especially for those who use the iPhone, that at times, by the time you, you get into the shop to get one, before you are out, the next one is out. And you wonder if you should go back inside to get the next, I don't know if it's called series, but also before, after you get that one, before you are out, the next one is, has been released. And the fact is, that the world is always changing. There are always new things. And today's greatest car is tomorrow's taxi. So these things can never satisfy. There is only one who never changes, and that is God. The world and its desires are passing away. And they're not just passing away in the fact that they are going to disappear. The world is passing away because God also is going to judge the world. You know, the God who made the world and created it and, and put man in it has every right to define how we live. And when we turn to him, he has every right to judge us. 
You know, I said this because a couple of weeks ago, um, I was on the news because there, there, there was a, a, a report that came out about a church that, you know, had passed a law that, you know, we are not going to redefine marriage. And one of the news anchors, I won't mention his name, um, he, he was quite angry that, you know, this was so. And he said this, I just, I want us to, to listen carefully to what he said. He said, I respect people's right to believe in whatever they want to believe in their God. But if you believe in something that hurts another person or does not give someone the same rights or freedoms, I think that is wrong. Then he says this, God is not about hindering people or even judging people. And when I, when I, when I heard that, I, I said to myself, well, maybe he has not opened his Bible to read. The other psalmist says that, but God is the judge. Psalm 75, verse 7. Psalm 50, verse 6, for God himself is judge. Hebrews 12, 23. And to God, the judge of all. James 4, 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The truth is this, that God is going to judge the world. And that's one of the reasons why the world is passing away. One, there is sin in it. And because of that, it's not moving to more life. It's moving to more and more death. And when I, when I did ask the question of our greatest desires, and for some of us, we might confess that it is tending towards a love for the world. And that might leave us hopeless. And when we hear that God is going to judge the world, that might leave us more and more hopeless. But thankfully, John doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just tell us that the world is passing away. He doesn't just tell us that the desires in the world is passing away. He gives us a hope. He reminds us that those who do the will of God will abide forever. Those who do the will of God will abide forever. You see, the same temptations that pull men away from God still influence us. And no natural man rejoices in doing God's will or desires to do it. And John is quite clear in the distinctions that he makes in this letter. He talks about those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. He talks about those who are the children of God and those who are children of the devil. 
those who are children of wrath. He talks about those who are born of God and those who are born of the devil. And the only way anyone can do God's will is not for you to go back home and make a list. And then every day you are ticking it. The only way you can truly live for God is if you are his child. And the only way you can be his child is if you are born again, if you are born of him. I believe um, today happens to be um, Father's Day, if I'm right. Each and every one of us here have a great privilege of having an early father and a mother. But is it possible that in a, crowd of this, in, in a crowd of this size, there are those who are not children of God? See, it's not that you grew up in a Christian family or you had that heritage of a father, mother, and children, or your grandfathers and all that, who are believers. No, it's not that. It's the fact that you know that you are born again, that you are born of God, that he walks in your life and he has walked in your life. And in, in John chapter 1, uh, no, we, we have dealt a, lo- a lot with, with the gospel of John. And so permit me if, if I go back to it. But in John chapter 1, he, he describes this when he talks about Jesus in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that is where we have to begin. That is the, the testimony that John reminds his readers. That the only way they can move from darkness to light, the only way they can move from living under the power of the devil, the only way they can move from being opposed to God, is that they are born of God. And for those of us who are born of God, the evidence that we are born of him is that we walk in the light. That we do not love the world, but that we love the Father. That we love the one who, in spite of the fact that we, we opposed him, in spite of the fact that we rejected him, has been so merciful to us. And also, as we live in the world, we have to testify that there is only one Savior, and it's Jesus. And that is one of the reasons why we have to remain in the world as believers, because that is the only hope for the world. That is the only hope for you.
You might have your goals and aspirations and expectations. And the hymn that we sang reminds us that whether we like it or not, in a, in a sense, our future is unknown. But if we do know Jesus, our ultimate hope is in him. And he has won the ultimate victory. And lastly, to remind us that the will of God for us as believers also is our sanctification. That we continue to walk in the light. That we continue to, to be a witness to who he is. That we continue to, in a sense, reflect that image of Christ in us. Um, there, there is this um, story that I did hear of, from one of my favorite uh, preachers. And I might not get the story perfectly, but it, it was just about um, a couple and how they met. Um, the man was at, a, at an event, and so this lady walked in. And when they began to talk, he, he realized that, oh, he actually knew her um, from way back. And how did he know her? Um, when he was growing up in the street, I think he was still a teenager, teenager there, and she also. And she was you know, helping her dad to put something onto his boot. And he thought to himself, wow, what a lovely lady she is. And years later, they met again, and he realized that, oh, even before he did meet her, he had, in a sense, loved her. And for those of us who know Christ Christ and who know God, before we came into this world, he did love us, and he sent his son for us. And the fact is this, that because he has loved us, we ought to love him. We must love him. Uh, uh, the, the hymn I, uh, I chose, I know it's uh, the final hymn, it's not one that we are quite familiar with. But I chose it because it should be a prayer for each and every one of us who are believers. Our ultimate prayer should be one that when we come to God, we respect the fact of our weakness, that we truly need Him. That when we go out in the world, we face temptations of different kinds. But it's only by His grace and His strength that we can live in this world. So just give us a a brief moment. If um, you have something that you just want to briefly pray about from all that you have heard, and ask for God's strength and God's help before we will sing the hymn.